Hello, welcome to Bush History. I'm David Bush. You're listening to my 10th podcast review in this series on American history. It'll cover the years 1970 to 1993. This podcast, as well as the rest of my podcasts, are also available on YouTube on my Bush History channel. You can get additional information at www.bushhistory.net. That's B-U-S-C-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. Thank you. The 1970s are a mixed bag in American history, and it's certainly a mixed bag for the Nixon administration. The 1970s start out in 1970 with Cambodia and Kent State. And we all know that uh, Cambodia expanded the Vietnam War, and Kent State was the reaction to it at Kent State in Ohio, and the ultimate uh, situation where the National Guardsmen are going to end up shooting into the crowd, or we're going to have protesters killed. We move into the 1970s, and Richard Nixon would like a, a better relationship with the communist world. And we have the policy of detente. Detente is an easing of tensions. There have been many different terms for policies during the Cold War, and Nixon's policy is one of detente. As part of detente, we have a number of things occurring. First of all, we're going to have ping-pong diplomacy. Ping-pong diplomacy is an easing of relationship with China in which we're going to exchange ping-pong teams. It's going to open the door to later much warmer relations with China. The My Lai massacre is going to be revealed to the American people in 1971. That's the horrible massacre that occurred in 1968. And it's going to really cast a very ugly look on American soldiers. And this is where the whole idea of American soldiers being labeled as baby killers and murderers comes from. Obviously, it's just a small group of soldiers involved in this, but uh, it is all over the media, and the images are very profound when you see uh, women and children in a ditch, and they've been shot by American soldiers. So it's an image that sticks, and it's hard for the American military to get past this. Richard Nixon is also going to announce wage and price controls. Inflation is out of control, and he wants to stop everything cold. So there's a 90-day freeze on wages and a 90-day freeze on any kind of price changes, hoping to stabilize the economy. And another move to stabilize the economy, Richard Nixon is to take us off the gold standard. So now our money, finally, after years of debate and discussion, is only going to be based on international exchange rates and a good faith and credit of the United States government. So our money is no longer based on gold, no longer based on silver or precious metal of any kind. And it allows for more printing of American money because the multiplier effect does not have to apply anymore. The Pentagon Papers have come out in 1971. Daniel Ellsberg seeking to uh, basically study the Vietnam War actually asked the Pentagon for papers relating to the Vietnam War and they gave him papers. And those papers showed a series of lies and um, half-truths told by the United States government about American involvement in Vietnam, even questioning the legitimacy of the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964 under Lyndon Johnson. Now, of course, Nixon's not president, but he really takes this as an incredible offense against the United States government, wants to know how this information got out there, when the reality of it is Daniel Ellsberg simply asked for it and he was given it. So the Nixon uh, administration tries to stop the printing of these papers and these articles, and, and we end up with the United States, the New York Times versus the United States, in which, in which the New York Times wins, and New York Times is now able to publish these papers as part of an ongoing series of articles about the Vietnam War. And the, uh, the Nixon administration's response is not a healthy one. In many ways, this begins the series of events that are going to lead to Watergate. A group of uh, 
investigators called the plumbers are going to be instituted in which these plumbers are supposed to stop White House leaks and work on problems occurring with information seeping out of the White House. And that's ultimately going to lead to a group called CREEP, the Committee to Re-Elect the President, and they will be the ones in charge of the Watergate break-in. Now, we move ahead into 1972, and we will have Watergate. We will have Watergate in 1972. Watergate is a hotel. And at the hotel, the Democratic Party had its national headquarters. And the Watergate break-in was an attempt by the committee to re-elect the president to find out what the Democrats were going to do and say. Because if you know what your opponent is going to do or say, it becomes much easier to thwart them in an election year. Of course, the silliness of this whole thing is that Richard Nixon was very popular in 1972. And he was, uh, you know, he was a in for re-election, and it wasn't necessary. He ended up running against George McGovern, who was a very weak candidate, and Nixon won by a mile. And it didn't matter what happened at Watergate, so it's actually going to be unfortunate and unnecessary for Nixon. In 1972, we also get the 26th Amendment passed. The 26th Amendment will extend voting rights to 18-year-olds. And during this time period, this uh, different look at 18-year-olds and their responsibility in the adult world, states are also going to turn back the drinking age. Drinking age is state by state, and we start to have like, many states with an 18-year-old drinking age. The argument being, if you can go to a foreign land and be given a gun and you can kill people, you should be able to vote and you should be able to have a beer. Uh, the drinking age will slowly creep back up to 21 as we find out it doesn't work as well as we thought it would, but the 26th Amendment holds that 18-year-olds certainly will keep the right to vote. In 1972, we'll also get SALT One, Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. It's a major treaty with Leonid Brezhnev to limit the proliferation of strategic weapons in the world, and it's a very good thing, and we start to turn, we start to turn back the clock a little on nuclear proliferation. So now we move forward to 1973. Watergate is being investigated in 1973. We can't forget that detente is going on. But at the same time, at the same time, we're going to get the Arab-Israeli War. And that's going to lead to an energy crisis in 1973. And it's the first time we actually have gas lines in the United States. Um, some states will have odd even gas rationing, depending on the last number of people's license plates and there will certainly be gas lines, and gasoline will rise in price from what had been in the 30s, like 36, 37 cents a gallon, to in the 50s, ultimately as part of this. 1973, we'll also see the end of the Vietnam War from a combat perspective for American soldiers. The Paris Peace Accords will be signed. Henry Kissinger is pivotal in this. He was uh, Richard Nixon's Secretary of State, and Vietnam will be divided at the 19th parallel, much as it had been after the Bien Phu in 1954. It's not going to hold, but in 1954, we don't know that. In 1973, we don't know that it's not going to hold. So basically, the Vietnam War, from an American perspective, comes to an end in 1973, and the POWs come home. The same year, very controversial, we'll have the Roe versus Wade decision, which basically is going to legalize abortion based on a Texas case. It's a 5-4 decision. It's very controversial. It's controversial till today, but nevertheless, Roe versus Wade, 1973, 5-4 decision. It would have been much better if it had been a unanimous decision, in much the way Brown had been a unanimous decision, but it didn't go that way. In 1974, based on the Watergate events, Nixon is going to have to resign. Richard Nixon resigned in August of 1974. Um, 
A House committee had voted to impeach Richard Nixon. The full House was going to vote on it the next day. Before the full House gets a chance to vote on impeaching Richard Nixon, he resigns. So Richard Nixon is not impeached. Many times people say Nixon was impeached. He was not impeached. He probably would have been impeached. He simply beat them to the punch. And Gerald Ford became President of the United States. Now, when Ford becomes President, we have a very unique situation. Because Gerald Ford was never voted for for vice president, and now he ascended to the presidency, he was never voted for for president. And he's going to choose governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, to be his vice president. So for the first and only time in American history, we have a president and a vice president that were never voted for. Very, very strange. And that really meant that the Ford presidency was going to be a tough one. Ford was a good man. History has a way of finding these people every once in a day. Find Gerald Ford. He was a good, nice man. And a month into his presidency, he realized that Watergate and the Watergate investigation was strangling the nation. The country wanted Richard, Richard Nixon to testify. They wanted to know what happened. And Gerald Ford realized that putting a, uh, an ex-American president on the stand was very counterproductive. So what he did is he issued a full and total pardon to Richard Nixon for any crimes he may have committed against the United States. And that's in September of 1974. Of course, the detractors said that this was a deal. This was a secret deal that Nixon had made with Ford. I'll tell you that in a, an interview shortly before Gerald Ford's death, he said there was no deal. He said, I had to govern the nation, and Watergate was in the way, so I made my decision. Um, a good part of the country simply didn't believe him. And what's going to happen, we're going to move forward. 1975, Vietnam is going to fall. The North is going to invade the South. The, uh, the governor of South Vietnam asked the Ford administration for help because Richard Nixon had promised help if uh, the North invaded the South. Congress said no, they wanted no more with Vietnam, and Vietnam falls. And this is a, a huge, huge disgrace because there are images of refugees trying to get out of the American embassy. There are images of helicopters uh, landing on the roof of the American embassy trying to get refugees out, and it's really not the way you turn around and, and you want your foreign policy to be looked at in the world. It was a huge embarrassment. Also in 1975, not connected to anything, but it's still around today, Saturday Night Live with the original cast appears in 1975. We also have an economic event called stagflation. Stagflation is a term unique to this time period. Normally when you get inflation, you get high employment, not unemployment. But during the 1970s, we had high inflation and high unemployment, which is odd, because high inflation generally means that there's a lot of money in circulation and there'd be a lot of jobs being created. That's not happening. Uh, Nixon was dealing with it with his wage and price control. Gerald Ford is going to deal with it, and ultimately Jimmy Carter is going to deal with it. It kind of encompasses the 1970s. 1976, I was in high school in 1976, it was a big party. It was the bicentennial celebration. It was celebrating 200 years of American democracy in the world, and it was a wonderful year in terms of uh, in terms of American pride. Now we move to 1977, and we think of computers as a 90 as a 1990s event. Well, the Commodore PET, as it's called, uh, appears in 1977. We are the first home computer, and another cultural event occurs with the death of Elvis Presley. Jimmy Carter had won the 1976 election, so he becomes president in 1977 as a Washington outsider. Jimmy Carter was a man who was going to run the government based on honesty and integrity and his, uh, 
his faith, his Baptist faith, would be a big part of his presidency. Jimmy Carter was a good ethical man, and he had trouble making things work in Washington, D.C., because we could probably say that the rest of Washington, D.C. maybe was not as ethical as Jimmy Carter. In 1978, as the crowning achievement of the Carter presidency, he's going to get the Camp David Accords signed, which is an agreement between Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Menachem Begin, and it's a peace treaty that has lasted till this day. Uh, till this day, Egypt and Israel, in spite of all the other controversies in the Middle East, are still on somewhat friendly relations, and there's still, still been no wars between Egypt and Israel. So we have a peace treaty in the Middle East that's actually held. And during the same year, we'll get the Panama Canal Treaty. The Panama Canal Treaty agreed to turn the Panama Canal back to the citizens of Panama in the year 2000, 1999 to 2000. And the odd thing about this is when the Panama Canal was built in 1914, went from 1904 to 1914, its construction, it was thought to have a 100-year life. And if you recall, we got the Panama Canal because we fermented a revolution in the northern part of Colombia and Panama gains independence from Colombia, and the first deal Panama made was that we would be able to have this canal. So the canal was supposed to have a 100-year life. Well, we turned it over at about 90 years, and someplace around 2013, 14, and 15, it requires major maintenance, and we're going to see how that ultimately comes out. Anyway, that Panama Canal Treaty is in 1978. Welcome back. So here we are, it's actually, uh, it's a Friday, the miracle of modern editing, and you see it's Hawaiian shirt day. Hawaiian shirts always on Fridays, has to be, for the last 30 years, and I've got a lot of them. Anyway, I had a glitch in the second part of my timeline that I started yesterday on Thursday, so I'm going to simply continue it today. That explains the difference in the way I look from the first half of this segment to the second half of the segment. So, continuing. 1979, uh, Jimmy Carter is in office. He just followed a very good 1978, with the exception of the economy still sputtering. But in 1979, things just don't work out well. Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. Three Mile Island is a nuclear power plant, and this nuclear power plant faced a partial meltdown, meaning the core became too hot for the coolant chamber, and there was a fear that if it melted through the entire building, <clears throat> that um, it would actually melt into the soil below the building, creating a radioactive cloud. Uh, it was a fear. It was in the news for several days, and ultimately it did not happen. One of the enduring images was Jimmy Carter putting on a protective suit and touring the plant. Uh, Jimmy Carter was a, actually a physics expert, and he brought some of his own homegrown uh, wisdom you want to the situation. I don't think he actually worked on anything technically, but he was there. It was a nice photo op for the president. During 1979, the Soviets also invade Afghanistan for their 10-year-long war, which will precede our 12-year-long war so far. And the Iranian hostage crisis occurs in which a group of Iranian students storm the American embassy and hold American diplomats and workers as hostages, which is partly what the movie Argo is based on, although that's based on just a small group who were not actually taken hostage, but were certainly there when the event occurred. In 1980, we're going to have the American reaction from Jimmy Carter to the Soviets invading Afghanistan. He says, okay, you know what? You're going to invade Afghanistan. You're not going to get out of Afghanistan. 
we're going to boycott the Moscow Olympics. So we boycott the Moscow Olympics. It's kind of an infinite response. Jimmy Carter was not the type to take military action too quickly, so it was more of a political point of view to protest what was happening in Afghanistan. And in December of 1980, John Lennon is going to be assassinated outside his, um, his apartment at the Dakota in Manhattan. Uh, very, very poignant moment for the, uh, the man who tried to lead, to lead the peace movement and the anti-war movement in the 1960s to die such a violent death in 1980. Around the time of 1980, 1981, scientists and doctors were trying to figure out what was happening with a virus that was attacking the immune system in a lot of people around the world. And ultimately, in 1981, we're going to get the first use of the term AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. And they're going to find that this, this disorder, which ultimately leads to death, was uh, predominant in the homosexual population. So a, a whole period of homophobia arose again after we'd gone through the 1970s when people were getting used to the idea of alternate lifestyles. In the 1980s, not so much because it's AIDS is going to be linked to homosexuality and everything you can imagine ugly is going to go along with that. Also in 1980, 1981, sorry, Ronald Reagan will assume the presidency in January of 1981. On the very same day, the very same day, a half an hour after the inauguration, the Iranian hostages are released. Uh, there's a huge debate as to exactly what caused this. Was it a year and a half of Carter diplomacy and the Ayatollah realizing that, okay, it's time to release these people? Was it that they wanted to, the Iranians wanted to embarrass Jimmy Carter? Or was it that the Iranians feared what Ronald Reagan would do as president? To this day, it's not known. What we do know is that Jimmy Carter kept his promise. And his promise was that he would get those hostages out without them being harmed. And so in 1981, 1981, we launched MTV. And the first song ever on MTV was Video Killed the Radio Star. So MTV had a very long life of uh, airing music videos. And now the look of the music became as important as the sound, or maybe even more important than the sound in some cases. The Space Shuttle Columbia launches in 1981, and the beginning of the space program, as we know in the modern times, occurs with the whole uh, space shuttle program continuing throughout the 1980s and 1990s and well into the 2000s. Sandra Day O'Connor will be nominated to the Supreme Court by Ronald Reagan. She is the first woman nominated to the Supreme Court. She is a conservative. To that, there's no doubt. And Ronald Reagan is a conservative, but the very fact that Ronald Reagan would nominate a woman is a big step forward. With the Reagan presidency, we launch into a period of conservatism. Some people call it the conservative ascendancy. Ronald Reagan, while his, uh, his presidency can be debated, his leadership skills cannot, he was the leader the Americans were looking for. He was the leader the United States wanted. We'd been through the, the death of the young president and John Kennedy, the Vietnam War with Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, ultimately ending in Watergate for Richard Nixon, the Nobody voted for me, Gerald Ford, presidency, a very nice man, but there was the shadow of the pardon over his head. And Jimmy Carter, once again, a very nice ethical man who seemed to be at odds with the Washington insiders and uh, certainly doomed ultimately by the Iranian hostage crisis. So now we're going to hit Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is going to promise a new America. He's a flag-waving patriot. He calls it morning in America, and he says, 
this is who we are. We have these traditional values, and it's okay to wave the flag during the Reagan presidency. Of course, the rhetoric was much greater than the reality of his presidency, but he fit the times very well. With Ronald Reagan, we're going to get something called Reaganomics. We've gone through the stagflation time of the 1970s with high unemployment and high inflation. Ronald Reagan thought we need to do something about this. And his idea of Reaganomics, sometimes called trickle-down economics, simply meant let's cut taxes so people have more money to spend, hopefully simulating the economy. Let's cut spending on social programs because the government is spending way too much on social programs to contributing to the deficit and the debt. And let's make sure that we deregulate business as much as possible so business can run itself, thereby fueling the economy. An idealistic idea, an interesting theory, and it largely doesn't work. Because while Ronald Reagan is indeed going to cut taxes, and he doesn't cut them nearly to the level we are now, because it became an illness after Reagan's presidency that every, every president following has got to deal with, we've got to cut taxes, we've got to cut taxes. It's going to end up by take, trying to take a bath without enough water. You're not going to be able to take a bath if you don't have enough water. You're not going to be able to run the government if you don't have enough money. Nevertheless, Ronald Reagan is going to cut taxes at the same time he's going to increase defense spending. So he's cutting taxes, increasing defense spending, cutting social programs, and what's going to happen is the deficit is going to rise a lot, as will the debt. When Ronald Reagan became president, the debt was about $900 billion. By the time we hit 1986, the debt's going to be $2 trillion. So something's not working out, but people aren't paying attention. At least the lovers of his ideas are not paying attention. Anyway, so to move back a little bit, so now we have an idea what Reaganomics is all about. Ronald Reagan is also going to be the Cold Warrior. He's going to increase his Cold War rhetoric, and he's going to challenge the Soviet Union the way they haven't been challenged since the 1950s. We're going to get the Mr. Reagan tear down this wall. We're going to get the evil empire. We're going to get Star Wars and SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative. And it actually starts in 1983 when Ronald Reagan announces the Strategic Defense Initiative and something called the Reagan Doctrine evolves. The Strategic Defense Initiative is a plan right out of Ronald Reagan's head. He didn't speak to his scientists, didn't speak to his defense people. He said, listen, I've got this idea, and it goes like this. You see, the world is a globe, and around this globe, I think we should put a bunch of satellites orbiting the globe. And those satellites, they'll be used to shoot down any missiles fired from the Soviet Union. Well, of course, the scientists hadn't been asked, the defense people hadn't been asked, and everyone was very surprised by this, including the Soviet Union. But they believed it. They believed we could do this, which would basically meant make their weapons impotent. And they're going to try for a short period of time to keep up, but they're going to have their own trouble. Because while they're debating SDI, they're going to go through not one, but two premiers. Konstantin Chernyenko, he'll be uh, appointed premier of the Soviet Union, he lasts about a year and a half. Then again, in Jur and then he had Yuri and Dropoff. Urian drop-off also lasts about a year and a half, and the uh, funniest headline of my lifetime on the New York Post, after Urian drop-off dies, it says, in drop-off, drops off. So the Soviet Union is in flux as well in the early 1980s, and certainly they will be gone by the time we hit the early 1990s. Anyway, with the announcement of the Strategic Defense Initiative, defense spending goes sky high. We will also send Marines into Lebanon. There's a war going on in Lebanon, and... It's a civil war, actually, and Ronald Reagan says, let's send in peacekeepers. So we're going to send the Marines to try to quell the violence. Unfortunately, what happens is while they're sleeping one night, 
a suicide bomber drives a truck filled with bombs up outside their barracks, explodes it, and 241 Marines are killed. Certainly a huge black eye. Ronald Reagan, very quick, let's send in the troops. And what happens? 241 soldiers are killed. In 1983, he also gives his evil empire speech in which he says, the Soviet Union is an evil empire that must be destroyed or removed from the earth and communism is a failed idea. It certainly turns up the rhetoric in the Cold War. And he also commits troops to Grenada. Grenada is a Caribbean island where a significant amount of Americans are attending medical school. And there is an unsettlement in Grenada. There's an attempt to have a revolution in Grenada. And Ronald Reagan says, nope, we got to go send in troops to protect these Americans. And he does. And of course, we watched it on CNN. It was a wild time. And it was an easy, um, an easy, easy foreign policy victory for Ronald Reagan because the Grenadians didn't have much they could do uh, with American Marines running around the streets. The Reagan Doctrine. And that, that comes from an idea that Ronald Reagan puts forth that it's the United States' responsibility to stop communism anywhere it's going to spread in the world. It's basically a restatement of containment, but it's a modern restatement of containment. And any nation fearing Soviet aggression can ask the United States for help, and we should help them. And you can see where that's going to uh, enter into the Iran-Contra affair in just a couple of years. So now we go into 1984. In 1984, Ronald Reagan is going to be re-elected in a landslide over Walter Mondale. People are basically enamored with the man. He is a nice, likable man. Personally, I thought his policies were terrible, but that's not the point. He was a nice, likable man, and he's going to be re-elected in 1984. And his response, or excuse me, his situation that he's going to deal with, with the Soviets in Afghanistan, is that they're going to boycott the Los Angeles Olympics. So they're not going to play ball with us. We wouldn't play with them. They're not going to play with us. Now, what's not up here, and probably should be, is somebody by the name of Charlie Wilson. Charlie Wilson is finding a way to fund the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. And it's going to become known as Charlie Wilson's War. He's going to find a way to get a billion dollars into the hands of the people fighting the Afghanis. Now, unfortunately, what that's going to create later on is we're going to have a bunch of people running around in Afghanistan after the Soviets leave with weapons that we were able to get for them. And that's going to create a lot of instability in Afghanistan. So we move now into 1985, and we have the emergence of Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev was a gift. Here was a guy. He replaced Yuri and Dropoff in the Soviet Union. And here was a guy who was practical. He said, this Cold War cannot continue like this. The Soviet Union cannot keep up with the spending of the United States. He believed that we were going to build SDI. So he decides he's going to extend an olive branch to both his people and to the United States. To his people, he comes up with the ideas of glasnost and perestroika. Combined, they mean greater political openness in the Soviet Union, and greater ability to engage in business. So you had a freer market, so to speak, and you had a more politically open environment in the 1980s. And it was like letting the tiger out of the cage. At first, the tiger was a little pensive, and then eventually it's going to lead to the downfall of the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union will go from adversary to somewhat, somewhat of a friendly relationship with the United States. Uh, Ronald Reagan meets with Mikhail Gorbachev several times, and they become friends. So if the leaders of the two great superpowers can become friends, we're not going to be far behind, fortunately. 1986, moving forward, 
We have this tremendous debt I was talking to you about. We have the Iran-Contra affair breaks. That will go from 1986 to 1987. And this was the incident in which Ronald Reagan was able to adopt the term the Teflon president. You see, Iraq and Iran were having a war. We were publicly selling weapons to Iraq. Um, keep that thought for a second. In Nicaragua, there was a war going on between the Sandinistas and the Contras. Sandinistas were communists. The Contras were trying to overthrow the communists in Nicaragua. And Ronald Reagan had asked Congress for money and weapons to support the Contras. Congress said no. Ronald Reagan, citing the Reagan Doctrine, said we have to do something about this. Congress said no. And then a strange thing happened. The Contras started to get money and weapons. And people weren't paying much attention to this. It wasn't that big in the news. And then, and, you know, investigative reporters do what they do. And it was found that the United States was somehow getting weapons into the hands of the Iranians. And the Iranians were paying for these weapons with lots of money. And that money was going to the Contras. And no one could figure out exactly how this happened. And it gets better in that what we're doing now is we are supplying the Iranians with weapons to fight the Iraqis. We are privately and secretly providing weapons for the Iranians, and we are publicly providing weapons to the Iraqis. So we're supplying both sides in this war. And then what's happening is the money that's being made from selling these weapons to Iran secretly is going to Nicaragua to fund the Contras in their war against the Sandinistas. Obviously, obviously, this is extraordinary, and it's going to make the news. And Ronald Reagan, previously claiming that he knew nothing about this and it wasn't happening, gets on TV and says, you know, my heart told me it wasn't happening, but the facts had told me there's something different. So did he lie or didn't he lie? It didn't seem to matter because people wanted to believe Ronald Reagan. And Oliver North gets up, puts his hand in the air and his hand in the Bible, and he basically tells Congress that he's responsible for the whole thing. He's a lieutenant colonel. The chance of him being responsible for the whole thing really need to make you think that the lieutenant colonel is going to be responsible for selling weapons, to an enemy of the United States, because in 1986, the Iranians were enemies of the United States, to an enemy of the United States, and funneling that money to Central America, to a nation which Congress said we can't supply anything to, now we're supplying something to them, so it really doesn't hold water, but nevertheless, that is the Iran-Contra affair. And unfortunately, huge, a huge tragedy in 1986, the Challenger, the, the shuttle Challenger explodes about a minute and a half after takeoff on January 28th, my wedding anniversary. Not that that should matter, but I remember poignantly for that reason, and it was a tragedy. Ronald Reagan had sought to make the space shuttle program something that was both commercially a viable, uh, viable program, and he'd also sought to put civilians into space. So Krista McCulloch, she was going to be the first teacher that was going to go into space as part of this national program to put a teacher in space, and she was going to teach lessons from space about the space program and about you know, other things. And she died during the explosion as well as the rest of the crew. It really threw a damper on NASA and the space program. It was a tremendous tragedy. 1987, moving forward, still that, that Reagan charisma. And Reagan goes to the Brandenburg Gates, I'm sorry, Brandenburg Gate in Germany. And he gives his famous tear down the wall, tear down this wall comment to Mikhail Gorbachev. He stands behind, by the Berlin Wall, the Berlin Wall is in the backdrop behind him. He's giving this wonderful speech about the evils of communism and the, the wonders of capitalism. And he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. No one thought it was going to happen. They thought it was just Reagan being Reagan. But it happened. 
Not yet, not yet, but it happened, nevertheless. So moving into 1987 as a show of the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union, we get the International Nuclear Freeze Treaty, the INF Treaty. And that is basically going to stop production of nuclear weapons. So the Soviet Union is paring down by stopping production. The United States is paring down by stopping production. It seems like the Cold War is going to end in a whimper as opposed to a bang, which is a very good thing. You have to give Ronald Reagan a great deal of credit for this, but you also have to credit every president before him. You have to credit um, Richard Nixon. You have to credit Jimmy Carter. You have to credit Gerald Ford. You have to credit Lyndon Johnson. You have to credit John Kennedy. You have to credit Eisenhower. You have to credit Harry Truman. These are all nations who stood up to the advances of the Soviet Union. So it's a combined effort. Ronald Reagan was simply there towards the end, and he really wasn't there at the, at the actual end. That credit is going to go to George H. Bush. So nevertheless, nevertheless, we move forward now. George Bush is running for president in 1988, and he's running on the coat heels of the very popular Ronald Reagan. And he promises to do what Reagan had done, to keep taxes low. So he gives his famous campaign promise of, read my lips, no new taxes. It was a promise he was going to come to regret. Because when he becomes president in 1989, he's going to realize the size of this debt and that the deficit is ruining the country and he's going to be forced to raise taxes. It is a wonderful thing. He puts party politics aside and he says, this is for the good of the nation. I'm going to raise taxes. And he does. Unfortunately for him, it will cost him the presidency. Um, he assumes the presidency in January 1989 and... We also, in 1989, had the Exxon Valdez, the largest environmental disaster in United States history till that day. The Exxon Valdez was an oil tanker, and it was run aground off the coast of uh, Alaska, and millions of gallons of oil spilled along the pristine Alaska coast, and it was, by all accounts, a disaster. And people started to question, started to question the viability of oil. Three Mile Island made us question the viability of nuclear power. Now we're questioning the viability of oil and is it worth the environmental risk? And it may be, you know, it may, it may in the long run turn out that it is worth the environmental risk. And another thing to consider is that it also spawned a new movement in alternative energy. So nevertheless, moving forward, now the Berlin Wall comes down in 1989. And then we're going to move to 1991 and we have the Persian Gulf War. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait in 1990. The United States said, get out of Kuwait. Saddam Hussein said, no, it's really mine. And he <coughs> cited these historical events that made Kuwait part of Iraq. What he really wanted was Iraq's coastline as an alternative way to ship his own oil. But nevertheless, George Bush goes to the UN Security Council. The UN Security Council gets a resolution to support throwing Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. and. George Bush one does it the right way, huge international support, and we're going to launch the Persian Gulf War to uh, basically get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, and we're successful doing that. It's not a very long war. lasts about 30 days in January of 1991 after Saddam Hussein had invaded in the summer of 1990, and George Bush makes a decision then not to go after Saddam Hussein. He said the mission was to expel the Iraqis from Kuwait, and we've done that and he stopped there. Some people think that he should have gone and taken Saddam Hussein. Some people think he shouldn't, that the mission was not to 
topple Saddam Hussein, this interesting historical debate in light of the events that follow, and kind of gives some fuel to the idea that W. Bush was trying to finish the job <clears throat> that his father started. I don't know where that one goes because there's a lot of other events to consider as well. Certainly 9-11 is part of that. Anyway, in 1991, the Soviet Union will dissolve. Mikhail Gorbachev is the last premier of the Soviet Union, and as stated previously, uh, George Bush is president at the time, and the Soviet Union goes with a whimper, not a bang. And George Bush, again to his credit, doesn't do a lot of celebrating about this, doesn't high-five anybody, basically says, okay, where do we go from here? And that Soviet Union, which was a, a central figure of Russia and a series of republics surrounding Russia, similar to our state system, of course they were not voluntary, our states are, are now going to become the Russian Federation and a central figure of Moscow and a series of states that once belonged to the Soviet Union will now be independent countries. And certainly what will happen with that. Anyway, so the USSR dissolves. In 1992, George Bush is going to run for re-election. He should have been a shoo-in. He oversees the end of the Cold War. He wins the Persian Gulf War, but he's not a shoo-in. He's not a shoo-in because, read my lips, no new taxes. And the voters remembered that. And Bill Clinton turns around and says, I have a better idea. He's charismatic, he's young, he's got a whole list of scandals the American public seems like it's willing to ignore, and he will be elected president and George Bush becomes a one-term president. In the first year of Bill Clinton's presidency, which will be dealt with more on another timeline, he's going to sign, don't ask, don't tell. And that don't ask, don't tell is going to basically say that homosexuals in the military will be allowed to remain in the military as long as they don't tell anyone they're homosexuals. And their superiors can't ask them if they're homosexuals. In light of modern times, and we are now at 2013, it seems like an archaic idea, but it was a step towards acceptance of homosexuality in the military. Now it seems like it's an abhorrent idea, but prior to that, people were drummed out of the military on suspicion. So it's a step. Also in 1993, we're going to get the World Trade Center bombing, the first World Trade Center bombing, in which a truck was driven into the parking garage under the World Trade Center and exploded. It's filled with explosives, exploded, exploded, bring down the tower. It did not, but it was certainly foreboding of things to come. And another thing in 1993, Bill Clinton signs the Family Leave Act, a European-style idea that will allow people with uh, personal family issues to take time off from their jobs and be guaranteed a return to their position. There are exceptions to it. The company has to have a certain amount of employees. It's got to be more than a handful of employees. I don't know exactly what number it is. not relevant. Uh, basically, with larger companies and that you have to be able to get your job back. So it frees people to take care of sick parents or sick children or personal situations like this. It's a very popular law under the Clinton administration. So that concludes the second part of the 1970s, 90s timeline, and the next part will continue concentrating on the Clinton administration and going into George W. Bush. And happy Friday.